Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. We're doing a show today about predicting the future. And I can't think about this without thinking about a person named Richard Rescorla. You may not know that name. He was the head of security for Morgan Stanley in the Twin Towers heading into 9-11. And he knew in his heart, he predicted over and over again that the towers would be attacked and that they needed better security. They needed better intelligence. He drilled his people. He drilled all the employees of Morgan Stanley in evacuation. They had to do it twice a year. They had to successfully evacuate the Twin Towers. And, of course, he was right. He saved a lot of lives. There's no question about that. He also gave up his own in the process of making sure everybody got out. And that has a lot to do with predicting the future, too. The people who predict it well, they're not always rewarded in the ways that you might think. They say the price of my war is not a price that they're willing to pay. Insane! You cheat with the French, now I'm fighting with France and with Spain. I'm so blue. I thought that we made an arrangement when you went away. You were mine to subdue. Well, even despite our estrangement, I've got a small query for you. What comes next? You've been freed Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own Awesome! Wow! Do you have a clue what happens now? Oceans You know, it's not just King George, though. It's a fundamental question. You could even argue that all of human epistemology could be divided into two basic questions. Crudely divided into two basic questions. What happened? And what comes next? We're going to be focusing more on that second question, although those two questions are not unconnected. You know, when you really start looking for it or tune yourself to it, you just notice how much time we spend either predicting the future or watching somebody else predict the future. Uh, I mean, Macbeth, it begins with a prediction, right? Nate Silver became a celebrity pundit when during and after the 2012 U.S. presidential election, he was just celebrated for correctly predicting the results in all 50 states. Things have gotten a little bit more complicated for Nate since then, but um, the history of the current pandemic is just littered with predictions about when it will end and what its viral kinetics are going to be, and and a lot of those predictions are wrong. And, and wrong predictions are a big part of predicting the future. Uh, on Election Day in 2016, nearly every public polling firm uh, predicted that Hillary Clinton would win the presidency. Um, the only, only question was how big her margin was going to be. You think about the number of experts who predicted the 2008 financial meltdown. That's a number pretty close to zero, depending on how you identify what an expert is. So that's sort of the subject of our our show today is, first of all, what's predicting the future all about? Why do we want it so bad? Why aren't we better at it? 
given all the resources we often commit to it. Uh, and to help us all the way through here, we, we have a whole bunch of guests for you, but the person who's going to be the, the consistent thread is Amanda Reese, uh, a historian of science based at the University of York who works on the history of the future. She is the author of the book Human. Uh, Amanda Reese, welcome to our show. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. So um, this idea, this thirst for knowledge about what is to come, I mean, it's pretty much as old as any written record, right? All the way through Scripture, uh, whether it's Jeremiah or Elijah or John the Baptist, uh, all the way through through mythology, um, and even in the administration of ancient empires. The Roman Empire had like a sub-bureaucracy of soothsayers and the haruspects who would read uh, entrails and, and consultations with the Oracle of Apollo at Daphne. I, I mean, for, for forever, essentially, people have wanted to know, especially leadership, I think, has wanted to know what's going to happen next. Well, what's that all about? Is that just wired into us? Well, yes, certainly. I mean, for as far back as we can tell within the written record, as you've just said, I mean, we've got evidence of people trying to prepare for or to plan for or to predict the future. And both at the level of kind of like, you know, the kings and the generals and, and the leaders, but also at the level of the farmer who's trying to work out, well, you know, if I plant crops here, are they actually going to be harvestable? What's going to happen? Are there going to be floods? So on and so forth. But it's also, I mean, it's not just humans. You know, the animals do this as well. There's some evidence that this goes back even further than written history. Um, we can actually trace it back about 14 million years to the last common ancestor. Now, how would we establish that that animals did this? So basically, um, some scholars at the University of St. Andrews, um, they work uh, on um, bonobos and orangutans, right? So basically both um, species that we're reasonably closely related to. And they basically did an experiment where effectively they showed um, the apes um, an apparatus and basically there was a tool that could be used to operate the apparatus to get the food. Nobody, None of the animals actually managed to operate the apparatus correctly the next time sorry, the first time, then they showed the animals how to do it. And then they took the tool away, right? So the animals couldn't use the tool to get to the um, food. Then the next day, when they showed the animals the apparatus again, and they showed them, showed them it with the tool, the animals then hid the tool, they took the tool away. So what the psychologists were arguing was that this was evidence that the animals were predicting what was going to happen next, that the tool was going to be removed from them and they weren't going to be able to use it to get to the food. So they were hiding the tool in order to be able in the future to be able to get out the food. Huh. I don't think there's a straight line from there to Paul the Octopus, who used to predict uh, World Cup games. He was an octopus being held in captivity. I think there was a lot of projection going on with Paul uh, in terms of how he was predicting things, although you may disagree. Um, but I think the other thing that's kind of interesting about the history of predicting the future is there's also an accompanying history of the acknowledgement of how hard it is to predict the future. Uh, we're going to play a little clip. This is from Oedipus Rex. Frances McDormand is Jocasta, mother of Oedipus. Uh, uh, here's what she says. Why should a man be ruled by fear when his life is ruled by chance? Nothing can be foreseen because everything is unfolding in the present moment to moment where it's best for men to live. Amanda, that sounds like good advice. 
Yeah, I missed some of it, but that one should live in the moment. Was that the gist of what was being said yeah, there? Yes, and also that, that sense that the only constant is change and chance. Uh, yeah. The uh, Every pundit I hear these days who tries to predict anything kind of often overlays it with that. Well, you know, of course, everything's changing all the time. So how can I really predict anything? But I'm going to predict something anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's always good to cover your back in that way, isn't it? Um, yeah, you could say that, but you could also say that it is a fundamental aspect of humanity that we want to plan for the future. You know, it's it's and it and it happens, as I said, at all levels of society. You know, writing your will is planning for the future in in in, in some senses, and it's an attempt to control and predict the future as well. Um, so it's. Uh, it is something that seems that is very deeply rooted in the kind of in the human psyche being able to do this. I think there's also this way in which when something happens, we then sort of reverse engineer it and look at everything that led up to it and, and begin yeah. to ask questions also about. I mean, I think the 2008 financial meltdown is a good example. Uh, so is 9-11. Why, yeah. given this these vast government and, and private sector apparatuses that exist yeah. to try to figure out what's going to happen. How come these these events of huge magnitude aren't better anticipated? Yeah. Um, one argument in response to that is that basically what you need is is is, is essentially more diversity in people predicting the future. Um, so basically, if you've got a bunch of people whose experiences are all the same, then they tend to think that their ideas about futures also tend to be the same. The other argument, though, is a bit different, which is that it depends on whether or not you think of history as a guide to the future. Right. Or if you think of the future as something that is is the, particularly the futures of the 21st century, where technological change is so speedy and, and so fast, whether you think about our futures now as something inherently unpredictable by history. Because if you think that you can depend on history to give you a guide as to what's going to happen next, then your approach to thinking about events like 9-11, um, like the 2008 crash, is going to be very, very different. In fact, you can't anticipate those. So the question then becomes, how do you anticipate the, the, the wholly unpredictable? Right. So, but I should say uh, the third and final segment of today's show will feature Amanda and Alan Lichtman, a professor who's become kind of famous for, in fact, mm. using history very specifically, using 13 keys or indices uh, th th derived from history to predict with unfailing accuracy uh, presidential elections. But we'll, we'll get yeah. to that in a second. But, you know, in terms of that sort of issue of diversity, I know you share an interest that we have on this show, which is uh, the work of people who produce speculative fiction, science fiction, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we discovered after the pandemic struck a tremendous amount of speculative fiction that got down to even fairly granular details. We, we found a science fiction short story that anticipated people baking a lot during the pandemic. It was like at that level. And and, yeah. and I know you've relied a bit on the work of people like Oct Octavia Butler and Robert Heinlein. Um, you know, it's interesting that those people who spend so much time thinking about what's going to happen are rarely consulted by the people whose lives and fortunes depend on knowing what's going to happen. I think you're absolutely right to point that out. And that's actually one of the key arguments that I've been trying to make in my writing and my working on the future, is that essentially we need to take account of the work of science fiction and fantastic writers, because their work is not about the fantastic. Their work is not about you know, kind of little green men and all the rest of it. Instead, what you've got there are, from these people are sustained attempts to imagine the unimaginable. 
You know, if you want to get your head around something that you that you feel that you can't anticipate, talking to a writer, talking to somebody whose job it is to sort of map out these potential futures is absolutely essential. I mean, my favourite um, character in this context is a guy called John Wyndham, um, who wrote Day of the Triffids, um, which I think, yeah, that would have appeared in the States as well, I think. Mm-hmm, yep. um, the Crack and Wakes was another one of his. Um, Village of the Damned, I think, was one of the films that was made from his work. Um, and he basically essentially said that, you know, this is the job of the science fiction writer. The science fiction writer's job in the age of modernity, in modern society, where, again, where science and technology are happening so quickly, it is literally our job to sit down and map out what the consequences of these technological developments could be to kind of create a kind of a lived sense at the granular level, as you say, not at the level of... um, of, of princes and prime ministers and presidents, but at the level also of the people in flats, the people in high rises, you know, how do you get out of your building if the electricity has been turned off? How do you manage um, to navigate a landscape that has suddenly been changed by a flood or by the loss of, or by the loss of other kinds of key sources of power? I, mean, I think science fiction is, is, is a really, really useful tool, a vital tool, I would say, in trying to expect the unexpected. When I would just, for your future edification or research or whatever, direct you to this really remarkable podcast called 912 by a guy named Dan Taberski. And one of the things that, oh, he, right. that he teases out is that after 9-11, the defense and intelligence establishment of the United States was asking that question again. What's, what yeah. comes next? What's going to happen next? And at a certain point, they turned maybe not so much to speculative fiction writers, but to kind of Hollywood. They brought in repeatedly people who were showrunners on you saw a series like 24 or people who worked on yeah. movies. And, and they, even, they even eventually gave them little jobs to do, like, let's see if if you can put an orange sticker on the Washington Monument when we're trying to watch for it. And they'd have some screenwriter go out and <laughs> do this. And you think, really? Are you guys so completely bankrupt of imagination that you have to have, like, you know, some director like Spike Jones come in and tell you what's going to happen? It's amazing. There's a group, isn't there? I mean, the, historically, you have had science fiction writers um, offering futurism consulting to the U.S. government. Um, there was... was it, yeah, it's called the Sigma Group, um, and they were involved in the Star Wars um, initiative, weren't they, as well? Je- Jerry Purnell um, was one of the characters there, I think. Well, also, you know, there's, of course, the long-running tradition. I mean, in a way, we're conflating a little bit seers, soothsayers, people like that yeah. with, with predictors. Yeah. Those are not the same thing. But obviously, there's yeah. a long-running tradition of heads of state wanting to consult with soothsayers or, or seers. And, and so I'm so old, Amanda, that I grew up when this woman, Jean Dixon, was a big celebrity in America. I mean, like, she was a mainstream celebrity. She was a a, a, a prophesier or whatever we want to call it. Uh, and supposedly, three different presidents consulted with her uh, about things. But as we also know, there's something called the Jean Dixon effect, right? Which is yeah. what, what you predict enough things, you're going to be right some of the time. Yeah. There's also, I mean, what I find fascinating about that as well is that it's, it, you can see a kind of um, distinction. If you look at the history of um, forecasting or predicting, you can see a kind of distinction between people who um people who can predict the future or who are thought to be able to predict the future because of some innate quality they've got, um, whether it's kind of some kind of um, a shaman that's got some access to a higher plane or whether it's some kind of innate talent um, to um, be or to be to be picked on by the gods or by God as kind of the representative prophecy. You've got individuals like that who are able, some who are seers, who are able or are thought of as being able to see the future. 
And then at the same time, you've got systems, right? You've got systems of divination like astrology, um, like palmistry, like numerology, like watching, I mean, all the kind of examples that you gave at the introduction there of kind of like the Roman bureaucracy of foretelling, where essentially what you've got is an attempt to systematize predicting the future so that it doesn't depend on an individual talent, but, you know, that there's, there's a kind of rule of a, a, a kind of, there's a, there's a, there's a body of law that you can use to try and figure out or to try and systematize what the future can be. Um, and it's interesting to see the ways in which those then play out, you know, even as we kind of move away from that kind of that, 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 that earlier period, as we move into the 20th century and we're supposed to have left things like, you know, believing in prophecy and believing in um, astrology behind, the way in which those continue to exert a really, really, really strong influence on the imagination and on the hopes and on the fears um, of of people again, whether they're whether they're princes or whether they're potentates or whether they're just ordinary people. So th- there's so many um, pitfalls to being a predictor. Um, yeah, there's the pitfall of being too right. In which case, there may be a, a lot of questions about how we. I mean, imagine that you or I had really, once again, in a fairly detailed way, predicted uh, a, a lot of aspects of 9/11. You know, if we'd done it publicly, we'd get called in and question, how did we know those things? Uh, and, and yeah. of course, there's, there's also the pitfall of being wrong, in which case, yeah. if you're the employee of the king of Babylonia, he's going to get very, very tired of you in a pretty profound way. But there's also just the fact that the future seems so improbable a lot of the time. Let's uh, listen to a <laughs> clip from Back to the Future. This is a movie made in, in 1985. Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, uh, goes back uh, into the past and tries to talk to Christopher Lloyd in 1955, trying to prove to him that he really is from the future. I'm telling the truth, Doc. You gotta believe me. Then tell me, future boy, <laughs> who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? The actor? <laughs> then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. I suppose Jane Wyman is a first lady. Well, wait, Doc. And Jack Benny is secretary of the treasury. Oh. Doc, you gotta listen to me. I got enough practical jokes for one evening. Good night, future boy. Eerily, there was like this 12-minute video that was circulating for a while that actually claimed that Back to the Future, seriously claimed that Back to the Future predicted the events of 9-11. They had all this kind of symbolism. They were kind of derived from it. But you do hear, Amanda, in that clip, that problem, right? That people yeah. who claim that they know the future um, are, are routinely disbelieved. Are we allowed to talk about Bruno here? We, we should talk about Bruno. <laughs> we can talk about Bruno. Why don't you set it up? Well, you know, the trouble with being a clairvoyant is that if you get it right, people tend to think that you're cursing them. Right. You know, if you say X is going to happen and then it happens, maybe somebody thinks or somebody sets, somebody can quite easily think that you have actually, you the clairvoyant by predicting it, have actually caused it to happen, which is why we don't talk about Bruno. All right. And so let's give you a little bit of musical accompaniment as we talk <laughs> about that. I'm not sure my kids would let me talk over this. 
Yeah, we could talk. We could definitely talk over this. So that's a, that's a song. That's a song for the movie Encanto. I mean, yeah. in a way, it, it, ca- it encapsulates one of the one of the problems. I mean, yeah. we could go back to Cassandra. I mean, when you're yeah. the problem with being right it, for Cassandra, ultimately, nobody believes her. All her prophecies of doom. But then she also tries to warn. Let's who it's Agamemnon uh, yeah. that Clytemnestra is not to be trusted, and her reward. And she's right. And yeah. a reward for that is that Clytemnestra kills both of them. Spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the prob- that was the curse of Cassandra, was that she was doomed to prophesy the future, to always be right and to never to be believed, so that nothing that she could do could make a difference. But And yeah, so it's dangerous to be a prophet and it's dangerous to get things right. It's sometimes even dangerous to be a science fiction writer and prophesy the future. There are several cases um, in the 1940s of science fiction writers writing about the atomic bomb and having visits um, from agents of the government who are a little bit concerned that the depiction of the bomb is a little little bit too accurate and they'd like to know exactly how that that had transpired so having dangerous knowledge 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 of the future is dangerous and having dangerous knowledge can be sometimes fatal or just sometimes very distressing but it also i mean one of the interesting things from that that then that then falls from that is that sometimes it's not actually that useful to know the future and it can be dangerous for the person that's actually in receipt of the prediction to know the future that by knowing the future they can cause the disaster that they're trying to avoid. The example, obviously, is is um, is Oedipus, Oedipus, Oedipus Rex, mm-hmm. where essentially, you know, the his father um, hears a prophecy when he's born that this son, this baby, is going to grow up to kill him, the father, and to marry his mother. So then they take action. They take a series of actions that they hope will stop this happening. But by taking those actions, they create the future that they're desperately trying to avert. Although that all kind of relies on a fairly Greek idea that the future is determined already, which is we tend not to believe. I mean, it seems to me the larger problem is predicting the future in such an information-rich climate that your predictions don't stand out. I think the pandemic's a good example. I can show mm-hmm. you, well, I mean, we did a show in, I think, 2019 called Are You Ready for the Next Pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we did work with Ed Young, who's a terrific journalist and who we've been writing about this stuff. But yeah, I, we yeah. could produce 100 people who've been gaming out pandemics forever. Yeah. But it doesn't matter, right? None of it really mattered. And we could show people uh, Soderbergh's movie Contagion, where so much of the stuff that we, we've seen, uh, I mean, they're talking about social distancing in the movie and stuff, but it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter that we that we knew that this could happen because you've got to get powerful people and probably a lot of not so powerful people to buy into your vision. Yeah, um, and again, if we go back to um, the kind of the atomic bomb um, situation, if we go back to the immediate post-war period, um, it, again, specifically in the states, if you look at the way in which futurology and futurism is being developed within the U.S. government, the U.S. military at that time, then what you see is is efforts to predict the future that are, that are essentially being stymied by power. Because if you can come up with an account of the future that's plausible enough, then a lot of power to you can accrue. That's the other side of the danger of being a soothsayer or a prophesier, I guess. You know, if, if, you, if you can convince people that your vision of the future is the accurate one, you become a very, very important player. So it became very, very difficult then to get different government institutions, not that government institutions are ever keen on cooperating, but it became much more difficult then to get government institutions to cooperate with each other. I think the really it's really important when you look at the history of predictions 
predictions, when you look at the history of the future, is to look at the look at the role that predictions playing in the present. How does how does how how do claims about the future shape our actions, and how do they affect what it is that we, at whatever level you want to interpret, we what, how does it affect what we are trying to do? Right. I told you so is a very unsatisfying yeah. way to, to <laughs> put a cap on, on on history. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Amanda will be back with us. We are going to be joined by a so-called super forecaster. Uh, Phil Tetlock has been on our show before. We're going to talk to one of his colleagues, Warren Hatch, a super forecaster and the CEO of Good Judgment Incorporated. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So we're talking about the complicated business of predicting the future. Uh, we're talking with Amanda Reese, a historian of science based at the University of York, works on the history of the future. She's the author of the book Human. Also joining us now, Warren Hatch, a super forecaster. We'll explain what that means. And CEO of Good Judgment Incorporated, which uses state-of-the-art techniques to quantify an uncertain future into numeric probabilities. So, uh, first of all, Warren Hatch, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, maybe just to set the stage, you should define the term super forecaster. Sure. Well, super forecasting is just a process to improve the way we think probabilistically about an uncertain future. There are steps that researchers found and we've seen confirmed with organizations we work with that can improve our ability to see through the haze. Um, and there's some that are very simple steps that anyone can take and it can become ever more complicated. A super forecaster is somebody who's very good at applying these steps uh, and they are typically in the top 0.5% of the forecasting population. It was originally a research project, that's how I got involved. And then we have had a commercial spinoff where the super forecasters are forecasting a lot of different topics. 
Yeah, so uh, we we did a whole show years ago with Phil Tetlock, who is sort of the godfather of that research project, I, I believe, anyway. And and but maybe you could just sort of help uh, people remember. I mean, one of the things that was kind of discovered was that having a tremendous amount of expertise in in some specific field might not be as important as the way a person thought about a question, a question about what's going to happen. Is China going to invade Taiwan? It might be that the person who spent the last 15 years uh, of his or her life developing an expertise in, in China studies doesn't predict this as well as a truck driver or a retired ballerina. So why would that be? Yeah, well, and Phil Tetlock, very much still active out on the frontiers of forecasting. Uh, and uh, uh, he would send his best. I'll be talking with him later today. I'll uh, remind him of your uh, earlier conversation. And uh, you're, you're right, is that being an expert in something does not necessarily make you a good forecaster about that thing. Experts, of course, excel at telling us how we got where we are, uh, but they have, by definition, a mental model of the world. Um, and what that mental model can be overly inflexible when new information comes along that uh, would otherwise not be captured there. And the thing is, is that if you're a very skilled generalist, and you know, ballerinas can be a skilled generalist and truck drivers can too, but so can experts in entirely different fields. They're, they are not burdened by those fixed models. And they can then say, well, wait a second, here's something new that's coming along. I think it's important. I'm going to think about it. And here's why. And then where the real power starts to click in is when that want, that individual can compare notes with somebody else who has yet a different perspective. And you start to build a team of very skilled generalists who all, however, are experts in forecasting. They can really bring in all the available information that will be relevant, sift through the information, the noise that isn't relevant, and, and then really zero in on, um, in this case, a probabilistic forecast about how likely a particular event will occur. Right. So, uh, Amanda, let's uh, turn back to you for a second. You know, one way, uh, as I listen to Warren talk, I think about the Isaiah uh, Berlin uh, dichotomy between the hedgehog and the fox. The hedgehog knows one thing very, very well. The fox knows a lot of different things. Uh, And it sounds to me, Amanda, like Warren is saying, if you're a hedgehog, you may have already kind of bought into a grand unified theory of reality. And so you're going to be less likely to notice uh, fluctuations in the pattern that diverge f- away from that, but which may be really important signs. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely correct. And I think that's absolutely right. Um, the most important thing, I mean, again, from my perspective, as, as somebody who's looking at the history of predicting the future, the most important marker of somebody that's going to be competent at doing it is, is, is the willingness to basically recognise error, to look back and then to change course as necessary. Um, one of the most, I don't know how familiar you guys are over there with the kind of things that are happening in politics in Britain at the moment, um, but one of the most embarrassing kind of moments for the government recently was when, was when one of their super forecasters went back and tried to edit their blog to try and show that they had in fact been right all along when they'd been wrong um, about a series of predictions to do with 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 the pandemic. 
I, I actually think there should be one day a month where everybody in the pundit class and and every like everybody just sort of David Lenhart was in the New York Times was making this argument recently too. We should all just come forward and say, okay, this I got this wrong. Uh, I didn't see this, and I mean, just get take the stigma away from it, take the shame away from it. But it's kind of the opposite. So you know, in 2008, we had the financial meltdown. Uh, there was a, a lot of criticism directed at among other things CNBC and and other kind of financial news networks. Uh, and uh, John Stewart on the Daily Show was kind of making fun of them. Uh, in particular, a man named Jim Craber, who became very angry about the way that his expertise or his failure to see the coming collapse uh, ha- had been mocked by Stewart. Uh, so they got together, and let's hear a little bit of that conversation. But the thing I wonder about is, and, and, and this is, CNBC sells itself as as financial experts. I think that's the the slogan. Reporters and commentators. Right. Okay. But I, I believe it says we have the financial expertise that that you need. And they have the access to the CEOs. Uh, and yet, they didn't catch any of this. And here they are blaming people who uh, don't have the financial expertise and saying that they're part of the problem. Their problem seems to be linear. It seems like uh, the banks and, and those that cheerled them turned a ge- uh, an arithmetic problem into a geometric one. They took a linear debt issue and by turning it into derivatives and securities and all that, now it's a gigantic problem. Right. So, so shouldn't we yell at them? I think that everyone could come in under criticism because right. we sh- all should have seen it more. I mean, admittedly, this is a terrible one, and mm-hmm. everybody got it wrong. I got a lot of things wrong because right. I think it was kind of one in a million shot. But I don't think anyone should be spared in this environment. So then, if I may, mm-hmm. why were you mad at us? No, I- <laughs> He also suggests, Stuart, that maybe they should just cut back a little bit on this whole business of of predicting. But, you know, Warren, one of the things that we know is that for the class of so-called experts or pundits, um, the, the the price to be paid for being wrong is uh, also a number very close to zero. Um, I mean, there are the supercuts of this very nice man, Bill Crystal, K-R-I-S-T-O-L, not not the comedian, uh, a pundit, just getting one thing wrong after another, <laughs> and to a point where he's become kind of the proxy for the pundit class getting stuff wrong. But it does appear that in terms of accountability, the fact that a lot of experts about the financial crisis or about invading Iraq or just pick anything, are underperforming a chimpanzee throwing darts, uh, it, it doesn't seem to matter, right? They, they still go to work every day. Uh, they do. And and I think, Amanda, was you were talking about Dominic coming? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's him. Well, just a point of clarification, while he presented himself as a super oh, yeah, forecaster, sure, sure, yeah. he was most certainly not one of our super forecasters and uh, doing what he did is exactly antithetical to to uh, to what we yeah, all I want. do apologize Warren I should have made that clearer he he described himself as a super forecaster but he's certainly not anything associated with you guys I do apologize no 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 but the thing is is that the UK in particular has really been leading the way on 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 improving the accountability Colin that you were just talking about both in the government and in in the private sector, really uh, taking a few steps ahead of of the U.S. where a lot of this originated. So uh, uh, it's really encouraging to see that uh, pundits even, and certainly public opinion makers, are increasingly holding themselves to account. And those in the media, which is uh, even more important, if anything, are holding them to account too. Because all too often, it is even difficult to be able to identify them as being wrong. 
Mm. Uh, they will use language that is so slippery that when an event occurs or does not, they can claim they were right no matter what happened. Well, and yeah. so when they say something might happen, uh, if you ask them what's your probability, that's going to improve public discourse. But does it? Let me let me follow up on that. So, yes, one of the terms that's kind of entered this whole field, Warren, is quantitative probability analysis. There are a lot of different words for this. But it allows, for example, the aforementioned Nate Sil Silver to say, well, you know, like on Election Day of 2016, he said there was a less than one in three chance of Trump winning the election. I can't remember the exact percent. Let's say it was 28 um, percent. And then Trump won the election and Nate Silver said, yeah, I was right. You know, I mean, something that would happen 28 percent of the time in, in Monte Carlo simulations or whatever they're running happened. And we know inevitably if you do enough simulations, that'll happen. But I, is that helpful? I find it very unhelpful somehow. <laughs> Well, I, I think that what Nate Silver did was a little bit different. What he did was he assigned a 28% probability, and again, I don't remember the exact number, to the Republican, in this case, Trump, winning the election. And you're right that, you know, we can't rerun reality that way. Um, you could imagine, though, that, you know, we're, um, suddenly the, the world splits into 100 different universes. In 28 of them, Trump wins. In the others, he does not. But that's not terribly helpful. Uh, I, I get that. But here's the thing. What's the alternative when we want to think about impactful events like that? Do we just throw up our hands and say, we don't know? Or do we say, well, you know, Nate Silver, you said 28% and he won, so I'm going to lose a little faith in, in you. Um, should we lose all faith or just a certain amount? And the thing is, is that Nate Silver, like super forecasters, they build up a track record so that you can see across 100 questions, and in our case, thousands of questions, and tens of thousands of individual forecasts, you can score them. You can see the track record. So that you know, when uh, a super forecaster says 28% probability of something occurring across 100 questions, in 28 of them they'll occur, and the rest they will not. That, in a probabilistic world, is what accuracy is about. It's not saying 28% and going, ah, oh, you're wrong if it doesn't occur. It's saying, well, 28% of the time it should not occur, uh, uh, and, and the rest of the time it, it, it should, if that makes sense. Right. I have to say, by the way, I'm a huge Nate Silver fan, and I've listened. I've learned listened to his podcast. I've read his work. I feel like I've learned a lot from it. But, but Amanda, I would love for you to react to this too. I mean, I certainly would rather have Nate Silver tell me that there's a 28 percent possibility, a probability rather that that Trump will, would win in 2016, than have somebody from the Joint Chiefs of Staff tell John F. Kennedy there's a distinct possibility the Bay of Pigs invasion will be successful. I mean, I'd rather have 28 percent than a term like a distinct possibility. But I don't know. How does that whole quantitative probability analysis work for you? I mean, I, I, my concern would be that when you assign numbers, you make things seem, uh, you make a prediction seem harder than it might necessarily be, right? And I think that's problematic. Um, and as you said, the, the kind of the uh, dismay and the distress and the kind of reaction to the um, to election day 2016 in terms of the expectations that people had had of what was actually going to happen is is kind of a measure of that. Um, if you assign numbers to something in that way, you make it seem more ostensibly scientific. You make it seem more certain. It doesn't necessarily help you in terms of deciding what your action is going to be because fundamentally it still all comes down to 
qualitative materials. It comes down to your interpretation and your capacity to interpret. So it's you know, the, the focus on the quantitative side of it to me. I'm cautious about it because fundamentally we're talking about a diagnosis rather than a definitive answer. Let me let me, get one, sense. let me get one more thing from you, Warren. We're going to run out of time in this segment, but I've, having a super forecaster here and the CEO of Good Judgment, for that matter, uh, is such a great opportunity. I mean, for the average person who is not going to become a super forecaster, uh, but who would like to be a little bit smarter about all this, can you just offer one or two, you know, tips, curbside tips that the, that the average person could could employ to become a little bit smarter, either about predicting the future or evaluating other people's predictions of the future? Well, I think a, a very key thing to do is something that um, I think aligns with what Amanda just said is uh, uh, having a number is is not enough. Daniel Kahneman said something like, no one ever made a decision because of a, num of a number, they need a story, right? And what we try and do is provide both. You can get numbers from different sources, all kinds of different sources, uh, but if you don't have the context for it, it's very difficult to make sense of it. What should you pay attention to? And on the other hand, uh, pundits, they're all story. Uh, the, uh, without the accountability of a number. So we're strong believers that you want and you need to have both. Uh, and that's something that any individual can do. So when you're thinking about something that's consequential to you, uh, take the time just to think through it and assign what number you think is correct with uh, the probability of that occurring. And if you do that enough times, you will develop it as a skill to know what kind of number to apply to different kinds of situations. At the same time, you want to write a comment, write down why you are making the forecast you are so that you can come back and revisit as information changes and maybe make an update. Or you can, uh, uh, when, when you get an answer, you can see if your thinking aligns with reality. This is absolutely critical that anybody can do and wasn't done after the 2016 election. Uh, we saw days later, every, almost instantly, uh, everyone say, oh, well, I knew it all the time. <laughs> so when you say story, I, I, I'm going to get in trouble with Lily Tyson because I need to go to a break here. But when you say story, I mean, what I think of, for example, tell me if this is the right analogy. Uh, everything I know comes from movies, unfortunately. So uh, in The Godfather, uh, there's a moment where uh, Michael Corleone is meeting with a bunch of other sort of crime leaders down in Cuba, and they're all talking about how great this regime is going to be for them and their casinos and stuff like that. And Michael Corleone says, you know, I saw something today. I saw a rebel uh, uh, approach um, members of the, of the Cuban army and detonate a grenade, killing himself and taking some of them out too. And it made me think there are people who really hate this regime uh, and that this regime may, be not as, may not be as stable uh, as you, Hyman Roth, and your Confederates are telling me. Is that your, would that be an example of a story that at the moment anyway lacks data to back it up but might be made to, to sort of correlate to some data? Yeah, yeah. So I'd want to ask Hyman, so what probability do you assign, right? So how consequential is that? And But that absolutely is the kind of data point that often gets uh, uh, omitted from the more formal models that generate numbers. Having humans and machines combined allows you to have story and accountability. All right. We have to take a quick, yeah. quick break. Amanda is going to be back with us. Um, Warren Hatch is a super forecaster, CEO of Good Judgment, which uses state-of-the-art techniques to quantify an uncertain future into numeric probabilities. Uh, we'll be back with Amanda and with a historian who's become somewhat famous for just getting it right over and over again. I can see 
Technical producer of today's show, the person firing off all that music, all those clips, and doing a lot of other things behind the scenes is Kat Pastor, and the producer of this episode is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, Lily Tyson. Um, all right, we've got a final segment here. Amanda Reese is still with us, uh, and joining us now is Alan Lickman, a distinguished professor of history at American University. His most recent book is 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. He's known for accurately reporting uh, the, uh, the predicting excuse me, the outcome of presidential elections since 1984. He's also apparently very fond of the number 13. So, uh, Alan Lickman, w- welcome to our conversation. Thank you so much. Happy to be with you. So I see you're fond uh, of the number 13 because famously you have 13 keys uh, or indices for predicting uh, a presidential election. We don't have time to run through all 13 of them. But explain how or why there can be 13 key indicators. Yeah, I didn't start out with the number 13, but that was the result. Uh, I did my research in 1981 in collaboration with the world's leading authority in earthquake prediction, uh, Volodya Kailas Borak. And we looked at every American presidential election since the horse and buggy days, the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 to the modern era, the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. And we reconceptualized elections, different from anyone else, not as Carter versus Reagan, Republican versus Democrat, liberal versus conservative, but in earthquake terms, stability, the White House party keeps the White House, earthquake, the White House party is turned out. And we looked at these elections based on the theory that American presidential elections primarily turn not on campaigning, not on fundraising speeches, tricks, but on the strength and mostly the performance of the party holding the White House. And we used a different method than everyone else. We didn't do big data, you know, regression analysis. We used Kylos Borok's method of pattern recognition of seeing what patterns are associated with stability and earthquake. And that research led us to coming up with 13 key indicators, the 13 keys, simple integral parameters, like is the sitting president running? Is there a contest for the incumbent party nomination, foreign policy successes and failures, long and short-term economy? And we came up with a simple decision rule. If six or more of the keys turn against the party holding the White House, They are predicted losers, otherwise they're predicted winners. And we made our first prediction in the April 1982 Washingtonian Magazine in the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression and predicted Ronald Reagan's reelection. 
And in 2016, by that time, unfortunately, Kyla Sporak had passed away, but I was virtually unique among academic forecasters in forecasting Donald Trump's victory, which you can imagine did not make me very popular <laughs> in 90% Democratic Washington, D.C., where I teach at American <laughs> Well, Amanda and I discussed earlier the problem of, of prophets who are correct. Uh, it's often a very unrewarding place to be. Amanda, this is something that you and I were talking about before. Is the past a prologue? Is the past a reliable guide to the future? Uh, and, and you know, one argument that could be made is, wow, it's just changing so fast. There are so many new technologies. There's so many ways in which paradigms of the past have been fractured. So uh, I'm sure Alan will have something to say about this. But before him, Amanda, I don't know, you, give us your take on that. Well, there's a long tradition of, of basically, I mean, since the 19th century, of, of looking to history to try and find uh, patterns to predict the pre- to predict the future by looking at past patterns. And I suppose, I mean, apart from um, Alan's own endeavours, one of the most famous examples of the present era, and I'd love to hear Alan's take on this, um, comes again from a collaboration between history and the field sciences, um, the natural sciences, the field sciences. Um, so Alan worked with um, with 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 an earthquake expert. Um, the example I'm thinking of is Peter Tertian, who's an ecologist at the University of Connecticut. And then, of course, 2010, of course, he predicted that the end of the second decade of the 20 of the 21st century, the 2020, would see a sharp increase in political volatility for Western democracy. He's developing part of his sort of developing science of, of, of clear dynamics. Now, I have a number of issues with that, which I'm not going to bore you with at the moment. Um, but I'd like, I'd, if, if it would be interesting, I'd like to, I'd like to sort of hear Alan's take on that. I mean, what's, what's, the, is there any difference, does he see any differences between his, between Turin's kind of quantitative historical analysis to predict the future and the kind of keys that you are picking out for specifically for elections. I, I want to hear it too. This, by the way, may be tragically the end of the show because we're running a little bit nah, out of time. No, but no, but but no. Peter Peter Turchin has been on with us in the past. Uh, we know him too. But Alan, yeah, what's your reaction? Yeah, uh, I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, obviously, the past is prologue, and that is the basis for prediction. But you can't trust any prediction until it has a track record. And my prediction system is unique in having, what, almost a 40-year track record of success. You know, uh, I think it was in 2012 when a bunch of Colorado University professors came up with a system and predicted a Romney landslide, and they claimed they had predicted lots of previous elections. Well, I hadn't predicted any. They had <laughs> retrodicted, looked at past elections. They had no track record of future prediction. The other thing that makes my system fundamentally different from any other is that it's based upon the structure of presidential elections. These are not random indicators. They're indicators based upon the theory, proven theory, that presidential elections turn on the performance of the White House party. And as a result, not only does it have predictive value, it has prescriptive value. That is, if you believe my results over 40 years, then we could have totally different kinds of campaigns. If traditional campaigning doesn't matter, we could have actually, believe it or not, campaigns not focused on dirty tricks, sound bites, but campaigns focused clearly on the vision of the different candidates for the future. And it's a lesson also for incumbent administrations that you can't talk your way out of problems like Donald Trump tried to do with the 
pandemic in 2020, that cost him his reelection. Instead of trying to talk his way out of it, he should have substantively dealt with it if he believed the keys. And I got a note from him after the 2016 election saying, congrats, Professor, good call. Well, he recognized the good call, but he didn't understand the implications of the keys. All right. If Camp- decision makers understand it, they'll behave much more rationally. All right. Campaigns based on policy and substance. That's eh, almost un-American. I don't know if we could do it. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> all right. So Amanda Reese, uh, author of the book Human and a historian of science uh, based at the University of York. She works on the history of the future. Alan Lickman, very famous for everything we just talked about, uh, correctly predicting elections, presidential elections since 1984. His most recent book is 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. Thanks to all of you who listened today.